America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Yeah, everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ole Oliker, speaking to you from intermittently sunny Geneva, Switzerland. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, speaking to you from Brussels, which is rarely sunny. But lately, much more sunny. Also not sunny is our conversational topic for today. We are coming back to the question of the war in Ukraine which is now past the 100-day mark, and fighting is continuing in the country's eastern Donbass region, and generally along a series of front lines in the east, which also cover territory to the south, and in some cases to the north of Donbass. This comes after an unsuccessful attempt by Russia to take Kiev. Its war aims have shifted, at least for now, and as Ali says, after restationing the majority of its ground forces in, in eastern Ukraine, the Kremlin is now focusing on extending its hold over the Donbass beyond Russian-backed separatist control before February's invasion. The region's really suffered. There's been indiscriminate mass shelling, which has resulted in huge loss of life. And while the whole of Ukraine continues to feel the effects of Russia's full-scale invasion, the dynamics of the fighting in the East are unique. And we'll try and unpick some of this today. But first, why don't we start with a brief overview of the current state of fighting in the East. Olya, perhaps you could tell us who's got the momentum in the East and where are the key flashpoints? As we record this, which is June 3rd, there's actually been a bit of a slowdown. But what we'd been seeing for a while was what started as a lot of back and forth between the Russians and the Ukrainians in the East has turned into slow progress by the Russians in a few areas. And at the time of recording, that seems to have stalled out a bit. It's really hard to say momentum under these conditions. It really is a question of both sides hoping that the other decides that the human toll in terms of casualties, the difficulty maintaining supplies, all of that will just force them to give up. And of course, neither side is in fact giving up. So we've seen really fierce fighting over Severodonetsk in the east, but it just varies from day to day. Every city, every village, every town that is bombarded and suffering brings its own tragedies. And in terms of the conflict itself, it's not that one of these is going to turn the tide particularly, it's more that, again, they're just trying to wear one another out. And I think one of the reasons that we have such a high death toll is you're seeing just really, as you said, Alyssa, just heavy use of artillery. So you combine that with probably not the best access to battlefield medicine in the world, uh, again, on both sides, and you're going to see really high military casualties. And then, of course, people live in a lot of these places, so you're going to see some substantial damage to both infrastructure and, of course, human lives. And we've seen these tactics being used by Russian army before, similar tactics in Syria and Chechnya. Is, do they have anything else in their playbook? 
does Russia have a different way of fighting? Well, you know, I guess they tried a different way of fighting early in the war when they approached along a whole lot of axes and got basically fundamentally turned around. The encircle and bombard approach to fighting is not sure the Russians have the copyright on it, but they've certainly been using it for a very long time in a lot of places. But I'm not sure I would actually say that the tactics in Syria and Chechnya and here are exactly the same. Syria, the Russian tactics were very much air power focused. What we see in Ukraine actually looks more like Chechnya. It's a combination of missile strikes, artillery strikes, some air power use. And that's been because the Ukrainians have fairly good anti-aircraft armaments. Maybe. I mean, it's also because in Syria, the Russian Air Force was operating in support of other forces, Syrian forces on the ground. So that just wasn't the job. Other people were doing the ground job. I think it's actually very interesting and has been interesting to this war that Russian military power hasn't been able to defeat Ukrainian air defenses. But that does not mean that the Ukrainians aren't taking a heavy hit from Russian aircraft as well. It really is a combination of things. What it does mean is that solutions like no-fly zones imposed by somebody else, which of course would draw that somebody else into the war and for that reason have their own problems, all those other problems out of the equation would be insufficient because the artillery and the missile strikes are doing so much damage and no-fly zones are of no value for that. Do we have any idea what Russia is hoping to get out of the conflict now? As we said earlier, its attempts to take Kiev were rebuffed. It's retrenched to the east. Will it be happy to stay at Donbass? Can we expect it to try and take more territory? Yeah, I mean, I think Russia's goals have not changed If you look at the rhetoric, if you look at the way they talk about Ukraine, and indeed, if you look at hundreds of years of Russian history, Russia's goal continues to be control one way or another over Ukraine. That doesn't mean that they want Ukraine necessarily to be part of Russia. I think their preference continues to be a Ukraine that is independent on paper, but very much a vassal state of Russia isn't going to happen quickly. And I think their initial vision was that uh, they were going to go in and the Ukrainian government would either capitulate or fall and they could replace it with a friendly government or this government would become a friendly government. I think their preference was replace. But when that very clearly did not happen, they had to rethink. What it looks like the goal is now is get as much territory as you can, maybe take a break, and then restart the fight and get a bit more potentially. Or in the meantime, put pressure on Ukraine to get it to capitulate and become the Ukraine they want. But for the time being, they're going to fight to get as much as they can get, both to weaken the Ukrainians And because they recognized the separatist uh, territories they had supported, they recognized them within the borders of the full regions of Ukraine that bear those names, Luhansk and Donetsk regions, which means they really would like to get to the edges of those borders, at least, first of all. They've also pretty much solidified control in Ukraine south, basically north of Crimea and then to the east over to the Russian border. 
and they have established control in these places and in other places that they've taken control of their Russian curricula. They're putting posters everywhere that say that this region is a wonderful and glowing Russian history. So they're clearly planning to hold on to all of that. But I think kind of this notion that there's a certain amount of this that they'd be satisfied with. And for that reason, you could just cut a deal of some sort and everybody would just take the territory they've got and this would be sustainable. It's not going to be sustainable from the Russian perspective. It's also not going to be sustainable from the Ukrainian perspective. I don't see a lot of ways where Ukraine feels comfortable with giving any of this land up, particularly given the many very credible stories of abuses that take place in parts of Ukraine that are occupied by Russian forces. Thinking about this idea of a compliant Ukraine that Russia's looking for, I mean, for someone who knows very little about Russian history, doesn't really know very much about current Russian politics or how the government thinks, but having seen the reaction that they've seen from the Ukrainian people and also having seen the reaction that we've seen from the West and the support that Ukraine's got from many quarters, it just seems incredible to me that Russia can still think that this is a potential option. The Ukrainians look like they want to maintain their independence. If anything, the Russians have actually seem to have have strengthened Ukrainian nationality and Ukrainian national identity. Yeah, even before February, in the years since 2014, the beginning of the war in Ukraine, there was a standing joke in Ukraine. They really should put a monument up to Putin because he's done the most for Ukrainian nationalism of anybody in hundreds of years. He really did unify Ukrainians of a variety of ethnic groups and linguistic backgrounds and made them feel Ukrainian. I think if you look at history, and if you look at the history of this part of the world, and you look at other histories, there are plenty of examples of countries controlling the territory and the governments of peoples that are not terribly friendly. This is what occupation is all about. And people do this all the time. It doesn't mean that these people ever start to love the occupiers, but for some reason, the occupiers don't then decide, oh, they don't like me. Maybe I am no longer interested in this territory. The Poles, through all the years of Soviet control of Poland, never grew to love the Russians that predominated in the leadership of the Soviet Union, nor did any of the populations of the Baltic countries, right? I mean, you could go on and on with just the Soviet example. So I think the Russians probably have given up on the notion that the Ukrainians naturally all love them, or at least the Russians in positions of authority, the ones making the decisions. But I don't think they've given up on the notion that Ukraine is rightfully a possession of Russia one way or another. They've self-evidently not stopped believing that. And based on what they're doing in the areas of Ukraine that they've occupied, it certainly seems that their intention is to try to convince young people to try to launch pretty substantial information campaigns that do try to convince people that their future is with Russia, that their history and Russian history are intertwined, which is not inaccurate, but it's now become intertwined in a much more negative way than ever before, that the language they should be speaking is Russian, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a pretty strong narrative that there's something at least culturally genocidal about all this, that there's an effort to wipe out this notion of what it is to be Ukrainian or of Ukrainian nationalism. 
And without getting into kind of the legal questions of what does and does not make something a genocide, I do think there's a very strong effort by Russia in areas of Ukraine that controls to make them as un-Ukrainian as possible. It's a very, very bleak picture that you've painted, Olya, and it makes me wonder, is there any hope for peace at all? We've seen the African Union calling for Russia and Ukraine to sit down and have talks. It doesn't sound like either of the parties are ready for that or that they will ever be ready for that. Do you see any hopes for peace? Well, you could have pauses, I think, if all things being equal, this is a really painful and costly in terms of people, equipment, infrastructure. It's a very costly war for both Russia and Ukraine. When you kind of get to what people call a mutually punishing stalemate, right, where nobody's making much progress, but everybody's feeling pain, you could see things sort of stop or pause at least. And then everybody regroups and thinks about how they're going to do better the next time around. But in the meantime, there's relative calm. I think unlikely, but just barely possible, this could be something that is enshrined in some sort of agreement. Then it looks a lot like the Minsk deals that you had in 2014 and 2015 in Ukraine that we're going to agree to disagree, but have some rules. And of course, those were marked by continued fighting, but less continued fighting. Probably more likely is not a deal beyond kind of a military deal because both Ukraine and Russia are also going to want to continue to strike, not just at the line of uh, contact, but into Ukrainian territory if you're Russian and into Ukrainian territory controlled by Russia if you're Ukraine to hit infrastructure to weaken supply routes and so forth. But the idea will be that they're going to fight it out again, not that they're going to come to the negotiating table and sort it out. Of course, the other possibilities are that one side or the other will start just having tremendous success on the ground, and that could force some kind of a deal. But again, unless that victory is fairly complete by one side or another, it's hard to imagine that deal being sustainable. Miracles could occur, but I think at present, both Russia and Ukraine think they've got far more to gain by continuing to fight. So the smart money is on us watching them continuing to fight. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You talked there about a possibility that one side might potentially have the balance of forces might go their way. Do we have any sense of how either side are positioned, what the balance is at the moment? Do we know how much the Russians have got in reserve? We see continually that Ukraine is being resupplied by the West, and in particularly those resupplies seem to be getting more and more sophisticated. Do we know what the balance looks like and what it might look like going forward? So... We've seen a lot of evidence that the Russians really are scraping the bottom of the barrel for equipment and that also they're having a hard time getting people into the fight. And I think this is one of the reasons the fighting has slowed substantially and narrowed is that they're focusing on what they think they can do with what they've got. And I think there's a certain logic to, in that case, we just move slowly. 
The Ukrainians also have limits to both people and equipment, and we've seen the Western gear show up all the way through. But obviously, there's a lag between the promises of Western aid and the Western aid showing up on the battlefield. Some of this stuff requires people to be trained on it, and that means getting trained somewhere outside of Ukraine and then bringing both the gear and the people back to the front lines. It just takes time for things to move, right? There's no teleporter that moves everything directly to the field of battle. So I think that's one part of it. The other part of it is while we've seen the Ukrainians take back small amounts of territory by fighting for it, most of the cases in which they've regained large swaths of territory, they've regained it not because they successfully fought the Russians back because the Russians retreated. I mean, this is Kiev and northern and central Ukraine when the Russians gave up on their plan A of moving into Ukraine from all sides. So how the Ukrainians would undertake a massive counteroffensive, it's an open question. We haven't seen them try yet. And then one wonders, why don't they try? Is it because they're waiting until they have more gear and they think they'll be more successful? Are they worried about having a shortage of personnel to do it? One of these uh, rules of thumb of warfare is that it is easier to defend than to attack. So for Ukraine to launch a counteroffensive against areas where the Russians have entrenched would be difficult. So it's not as simple as kind of counting up the tanks and artillery pieces on both sides, though that's also important. It's also what they're trying to accomplish. The slowness of the progress suggests that they're not that badly matched at this point, which is not something anyone would have expected to say back in February. But that's not quite right. They have different strengths and different weaknesses, the Ukrainians and the Russians. One of the great Ukrainian strengths is that they're fighting for their territory and for their land and for their country. And one of the Russian weaknesses is that I suspect a lot of Russian soldiers aren't quite sure what they're doing there. But again, kind of we've had a period of time when the Russians were slowly making progress. It's hard to know where the balance is going to be once more Western equipment shows up. We seem to have had a lot of Western equipment being pumped in. And as I said earlier, it's getting increasingly sophisticated beyond what I think many observers really anticipated would happen when the conflict started out. And there are many people, I think, in the US, in Europe, who are worried about escalation. We've seen the rhetoric around Nuclear weapons retreat seems to have calmed down a lot in recent weeks, but there does seem to be a sort of ramp up in what the West is providing. And is there a point where Russia says this far and no more and, and what might that look like? It's hard to imagine the Russians, what are they going to do? They're going to say, oh my God, you have sent equipment that is too modern and because of that we're going to do what exactly? You know, one of the things about this war is that it's added a little bit to our data set of when deterrence works and when it doesn't, nuclear deterrence specifically. And I would say nuclear deterrence has worked for both Russia and Western states in one sense and has failed them in a couple of other senses. So specifically, nuclear deterrence has worked for Russia and that Western states are not going to get directly involved in this war. Nuclear deterrence has worked for the Western states in that Russia is not going to attack their territories or do anything that will bring them into this war. So fundamentally, the fear from both the West and Russia of a war between the two of them and its escalation risks 
has made them take steps to avoid getting into such a war. Where deterrence hasn't worked is that Russia's threats regarding if you help Ukraine, you will face terrible consequences. Western states looked to that and just did not see that as a credible threat, so they went ahead and helped Ukraine. Conversely, Western states told Russia in the very first place, right, if you launch an attack on Ukraine, you will face terrible consequences. And the Russians thought about that and said, eh, we can live with that. How bad is it going to be? And I think this is the interesting question is if the Western response was actually worse than or more intense than either Western states or Russia expected, then you have to ask if Russia had believed them, might it have been deterred? I don't know the answer to that question, but it's kind of an interesting question. But I think the bottom line is, your deterrence threats have to be credible to be believed. It's hard to imagine a nuclear war because Western states have supplied Ukraine with a certain weapon system. It is plausible still to imagine a nuclear war if this does somehow escalate into a war between Russia and NATO, or at least nuclear use if this does somehow escalate into a war between Russia and NATO. It is just barely plausible to imagine a use of nuclear weapons by a Russia that's losing and wants to kind of stake its final claim in some way, shape, or form, but that would serve no military purpose. And it would, in fact, involve uh, Western states. They would be quite likely to respond, albeit probably not with nuclear weapon use. So I think deterrence works, at least for now. That doesn't mean we should be fully sanguine, but deterrence works, at least for now. Alyssa, I want to ask you a question as a longtime observer of how Western states respond to conflicts globally. There is a lot of worry in kind of the transatlantic community about unity. There's a lot of talk about who's provided what, who's helping how, is unity going to fall apart? That's been going on since 2014. Do you think people exaggerate this or do you think this is a real concern? I think in Europe, at least, and in the the EU, we've seen an incredible amount of unity. And I think this conflict has done what you said, Russian invasion in 2014 has done for Ukrainian nationality. I think it's something similar for European unity. The speed with which they've managed to apply sanctions, the speed with which they've managed to agree on the funding for arms is incredible and something that we didn't expect and our EU watchers at Crisis Group really did not expect. So I think it depends on the crisis. I mean, this is a crisis at home on the doorstep. And one of the complaints that we've heard from non-European states has been around the sort of swiftness and the strength of the European and Western response and that the fact that they haven't responded to crises in other parts of the world with the same speed, with the same degree of unity, with the same degree of intent. So I don't think you can generalise about these things. It's really a case-by-case thing, and this is existential for Europe. So it's going, we're going to stay united and at war is kind of right what it comes down to because the war continues. And I think you're right. I kind of every time people tell me they worry about unity, that as this drags on, the support for Ukraine will fray. My thought is now the Russians will do something that will make everybody angry and unified again. Don't you worry. But it paints a very dark future for all of us. It has put under greater spotlight, I think, some of the fissures in Europe to a certain extent, especially with Hungary. The oil sanctions that we saw the EU deploy just this last week or so 
they've been compromised by concessions to Hungary. How long and how far the EU states will be willing to continue making those concessions, it's not clear. But they are prepared to do that for the moment. And I think it has, to a great degree, strengthened belief in the European project across many quarters. And NATO, it's got Sweden and Finland wanting to join. You said it's existential for Europe, but it's also redefining uh, European security. We just don't know where it's going to go. No, and, and again, Russia has succeeded in doing what it wanted to avoid, which was to have more NATO troops on its border than it had before. And this brings me back to the question that I had before about how can Russia not be recalibrating and rethinking about what the result from this war can look like? given that the things that it was trying to avoid, like greater support for NATO, a more united, more determined Ukraine, these are direct results of the Russian invasion. And how can they not be recalculating their thoughts? Well, and then what conclusions do they reach if they do recalculate on what can they do next? Nation states don't tend to apologize. And especially not authoritarian nation states. No, yeah, especially not those. But even democratic ones uh, seem to have some trouble with the sorry. So even if they wanted to roll this back, how would they do it? What would they say? What would they do? They really have uh, driven themselves into a corner. And I do think one of the things Western countries could be thinking about is what incentives can you offer to Russia to make sure that if and when somebody decides to make a deal that's acceptable to the Ukrainians, that they'll do it. This is starting to feel more and more Pollyanna-ish to me with uh, every passing day. If I want a way out of this, that still seems like the only way out of it. So you need some sort of path where the Russians, I don't, you know, it's not saving face because I think the face is well lost. It's making sure that the benefits of backing away outweigh the costs of doing so. Because if you're in a situation where continuing to fight is terrible, but backing away from the fight is worse, they're going to continue to fight. So, Olya, it's not a particularly cheery note to leave us on. But I think our time is up for today. Yeah, well, I have the sneaking suspicion we will come back to Ukraine a time or seven more. So we will have more opportunities to discuss the many things we didn't get to. To read more of Crisis Group's work on Ukraine, check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org, where you'll be able to find extensive coverage of the Ukraine war, which has been carried out by Olya and her wonderful team. You can also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Uh, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Elissa is at Elissa Jobson, and I'm at Olya Ulliker. You should also check us out on Facebook and Instagram, where Crisis Group is also at Crisis Group. If you've enjoyed this podcast, and we hope you have, or if you have suggestions for topics or guests for the show, do give us a shout out on Twitter or wherever you are online. You can also email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And of course, we'd really love it if you could give us a rating and a review as well. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe. It's called Europod, and you should check out the others. Big thanks to our producer, Bull Media, and our coordinators, Finn Dunbar-Johnson and Alex Vigorsky, for making sure that we show up prepared every time we record. But the biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. We're looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.